Good morning. Ladies, thank you. Thank you for leading us and starting us off with that lovely music. So I guess we're fasting this morning. <laughs> I, I'm told from Tammy this is the first time in six years that we've had things, uh, dis maybe some disconnection here. So that's something to be uh, praiseful about. Um, I, I want to start with a couple of things. I um, want to start by thanking Connie, my dear sweet friend, for stepping in for us last week. I am just so appreciative of the friend she is for me and just all of her, all that she does for this ministry. So I'm very thankful that she was able to help out last week. Secondly, I want to remind you that the testimonies that the girls gave, they are now posted online. And so if you missed them, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. If you were here and you want to listen to them a second time, I, I found them that they're going to be worth um, hearing again. So you can do that. Then thirdly, I want to remind you that next week there is no abide. Next week is election Tuesday. So everyone go out and vote. So um, with all that said, let's pray. Father God, you are our delight. And we praise you and we love you. And we are so grateful to be able to be here and gather together as sisters in Christ and open your word. And I pray that you will be present among us and help us to understand the things that you would have us to know. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I had been saving up to buy living room furniture. And so one winter night, I had made arrangements for my teenage neighbor to come over and babysit. The plan was to take the baby and to leave the toddler. My, as usual, my husband was late getting home from work. It wasn't anything drastic, but it was just enough to irritate me when he said he wanted to take the long way to the furniture store. He wanted to pass his grandmother's house. Well, his grandmother lived on one of the city streets in our town, and earlier that week, a drunk driver had driven into the front of her house. And so she calls up my father-in-law late in the middle of the night, and she says that a man has just driven right into her living room. And my father-in-law says, now, mother, are you sure? And she says, well, I'm standing right here next to the guy. So um, my husband wanted to drive by and take a look and see um, what it looked like. And so we drove by. We looked at the boards. We then went to the furniture store. We looked around. We talked to a salesman. Didn't stay too long. Uh, we had a babysitter that had to go to school the next morning, and it was starting to snow. But we were finally on our way. We were about a quarter of a mile away from the house. It was very dark and snowy, and Bob could see up ahead in the opposite lane a car driving across into our lane. There were two cars ahead of us. That lane-crossing car would cross over and hit the first car. That first car would spin and hit head-on with the second car behind it and then that lane crossing car would hit it a second time. Now, um, this road, it had a reputation for being very dangerous. It, there was no berm, it was very narrow. There were guardrails all along the side. But as Bob was watching this, it just so happened that our car was right in front of a break of the guardrails. And so, and he would tell you that it was if someone else were driving, but he turned into that 
and off of the road just as that lane crossing car came towards us and hits the back of my car. I look back right away into my back seat and my baby is sleeping. He is unfazed. He is unharmed. We all, we all are unharmed. We get out. The back of my bumper has been bent off. And I can think and say only one thing. Lord, you are so merciful. You are so merciful. You are so merciful. This was back before cell phones, and yet surprisingly help started to arrive very quickly. We would learn that the lane crossing car, the driver was drunk. And the policewoman on the scene, would, she would eventually get to my car. She was very shaken, visibly shaken, and she saw the baby sitting in the back seat, and she said, oh, this guy's going to jail. And I would soon understand better. She would later come and inform us that the driver of the second car, the car directly in front of us, he had died. Now, I went home that night with a lot of questions. Lord, why did that man have to die? Why did this happen? Why was I there? Why was I spared? Why was I not in the second car? Why was my car not hit twice? Um, I decided to do the only thing that I knew to do, and that was I sat down at my kitchen table and I opened the Word of God. And I started to read I started searching through Job. I just figured there would surely be something there. And I came across a chapter where God asks Job a bunch of questions about nature. He says, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Did you make the ostrich without understanding? Do you make the hawk soar? And then I found myself in the book of Mark reading the story about the demon-possessed man that Jesus healed. And the man wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus told him, go home and report what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. I went to bed that night with a lot of unanswered questions, but there were a few things that were becoming more clear, and that was for some unexplained reason, God had shown me mercy. Didn't know why, didn't deserve it. But I knew that it was the mercy of God that had allowed me to arrive home at the end of the evening. The reality of mercy and my need for it, that was the number one lesson. Then secondly, I learned a valuable lesson about not trying to micromanage my husband and insist on my own way. Because how did I know that maybe the delays or the way my husband wanted to do something, maybe God was going to use that as a means of showing me mercy and keeping me safe. Let me ask you, how do you view the delays and the interruptions in your lives? Are you a micromanager? Do you insist on doing things your own way? And how do you view the ordinary workings and the daily events of your life, or maybe the not-so-ordinary? How do you understand them? And what part does mercy have in all of that?
If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Esther chapter 6? Esther chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 1. Esther 6.1 says this, On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds and the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Okay, this chapter, it starts out with a time phrase. It says, on that night. Okay, on what night? This is a good place for a speedy review. Okay, we said Esther. We said she is a young Jewish orphan, and she won a beauty contest, but, and she was made queen. But she did not tell anyone she was Jewish. She kept that a secret. And then we learned that there was a plot by the wicked Haman to kill all of the Jews. And eventually, Esther would learn about this, and she would call all of the people to join with her in fasting for three days and three nights from food and water. And then at the end of that, she was willing to risk her life and approach the king. Now, thankfully, the king holds out his scepter, and he asks her what is troubling her. She does not answer him. Instead, she invites him to a banquet with the wicked Haman. At the first banquet, the king asks her a second time in front of people, what is your request? And again, she doesn't tell him. Instead, she invites him and Haman to come to a second banquet. Okay, Haman is thrilled. He's thrilled about all the attention that he's getting, and he leaves the palace. And of all people, who does he happen to see? But there is Mordecai the Jew, who still will not bow down to him and show him honor, which is surprising at this point. But that ruins everything. So he goes back home, and he tells his family about it. And then his wife and his friends give him some really bad advice. They tell him, you need to build some really big gallows, and you need to impale that Mordecai on there so everybody can see. And so it was on that night after the first banquet and before the second when the hammers are pounding and building the gallows. That is the night that the king couldn't sleep. Okay, that's the review. Now, before we go any further, I want us to review a definition that I gave you back one of our first weeks. It was the word for providence. We said that the book of Esther is primarily a book about the sovereignty and providence of God. So I want us to revisit that definition. I have it on your papers. And this is a Jerry Bridges definition. It's number one, the providence of God is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all creation for his own glory and the good of his people. God is constantly at work caring for and ruling over creation. Now, I want you to underline the two objectives for his own glory and the good of his people. Sometimes people will write for the salvation of his people, okay? His own glory, the good of his people. Now, if you remember that, that week, we also talked about the definition for deism, and we said that a deist would liken God to a watchmaker who made the earth, he, he winds it up, he sets everything in motion, and then he has a very hands-off approach, okay? Providence is the exact opposite of that, okay? Providence would say that God is actively holding all things together and ruling over creation, okay? Now, um, a little side note. 
Next to, next to um, question number one, write Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. Someday you have a chance. Go back, read that chapter, and underline every verb. By the end of the chapter, you're going to make a conclusion. You're going to, you're going to realize God is active. And he's hands-on. Okay? So, that brings me to our next point. Number two. Providence is generally used to denote God's preserving and governing all things by means of second causes. Second causes. You could also use the word indirect. All right. God is actively preserving and governing over creation by second causes. Now, what do we mean by that? Okay. I'm going to give you two more definitions that will help. Number three, a miracle. A miracle is God working outside his creation laws. All right? And then number four, providence, God is working through his creation laws. Now, you could also say directly and indirectly for those two spaces. Let me give you an example. Let's say a farmer, he, builds, or he, he plants a vineyard and he works hard. And then he gathers his grapes, and then they ferment, and they become wine. All right, that's a natural process. It's designed. It's controlled by God. Okay, that would be an example of secondary causes. That's providence. All right, now when Jesus took plain water and immediately made it into wine, that's a miracle. All right, so let me give you another example. Say you're riding in a boat on the water. That's providence. If you're walking on the water, that's a miracle, okay? So God is at work in both, okay? He's at work holding all together, holding all things together, and he's at work ruling. Sometimes he uses miracles. Most of the time, he's working through secondary causes. He's working through the natural process and order of things. I have a quote on your handout. It was one of Desiring God's most popular tweets in 2012. It said this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. You see, God never sleeps or slumbers. He is actively working, holding all things together and ruling over creation, and most of the time we are completely oblivious. He's doing 10,000 things in your life, and you are probably only aware of, say, three of them. Now, in the book of Esther, it is just a famous example of all of this. All right? In the book of Esther, there are no miracles. All right? So instead, we're going to see God mysteriously at work behind the scenes, okay, and using all the ordinary, all the secondary causes in order to fulfill his purpose. Okay, and, and these chapters are just really going to show those things off today. Okay, now, we just read that it just so happened that the king could not sleep. And, and so he did what people often do. You go to the library, you pick a boring book, and you try to fall back to sleep. And so um, the king, he calls for his history book about his reign. All right, let's look at verse 2. Esther chapter 6, verse 2 says this, And it was found written how Mordecai, 
had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. All right, verse 2 says, and it was found. It just so happened. They picked out the history book. And they just so happened to turn to the page about Mordecai saving his life. Okay, and, and, the, and remember, people were usually rewarded and honored for saving the king's life. And so the king says, hey, wait a minute. What did, what did you say we did for that guy? It says you didn't do anything for him. We didn't do anything for him. Well, now that's not good. Okay, if, if people were not honored or rewarded, then they weren't going to be willing to stick their neck out for the king. Okay, now verse four. And the king said, who was in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. All right, now the author's been setting us up for this because he's been showing us that the king doesn't really make decisions unless he's uh, conferred with somebody and met with his advisors. And so it just so happens that Haman has arrived bright and early to see the king. Now, there are some people that think that the king has put two and two together, and he thinks that Esther has risked her life in order to approach him about Mordecai to seek recognition for him. Who knows? It could be. In any event, Haman has arrived to talk about hanging him. All right, verse 6. <clears throat> so Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? All right, this is one of the few places in the book where we are told what someone is thinking. Remember, we said that's not how this work, book has worked up to this point. But I want you to notice something. In chapter 3, when Haman was plotting and when he went to the king, he didn't say that he wanted to kill the Jews. He said he wanted to kill those people. He wanted to kill certain people. He never used the name of the Jews um, specifically. Now, we're going to see that becomes deliciously ironic in this chapter. Okay, because the name of the man to be honored has been left out. Okay, clearly, had the king used the name Mordecai, Haman would have looked at this very differently. All right, verse 7. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman has an elaborate idea, and you kind of get the feeling he's given this some thought before. He says, let him wear something the king has worn and ride on the horse the king has ridden. All right, to be given a robe that had been worn by the king was, was very honorable. Okay, it was also a, a sign of great favor. And, and then to ride on the horse was almost like getting to sit in the throne, on the throne. So this is a major big deal. 
And then, of course, the added touch is Haman says, have someone lead him around town with a megaphone shouting about how honored he is. We want everybody to see this. All right, verse 10. Then the king says to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. Oh, did the blood drain from his face. You know. Did he become sick when he, heard the, when he heard the name Mordecai? When he heard the king say, oh, I love it. Do it exactly as you have said. Leave nothing out. Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. The tables have turned. There was no disobeying the king, and so he was going to have to do everything exactly like he suggested. He puts the fancy royal robes on Mordecai, he puts them on the fancy horse, and then he marches him through the square of the city. Now I want you to think, we've seen Mordecai here before. Remember, this is where Esther's eunuch met with him when he was dressed in ashes and sackcloth. And so Haman takes Mordecai through the busiest part of town. He is completely humiliated. He returns home with his head covered. Mordecai goes back to the king's gate. Now, that's a very interesting little tidbit to include. Mordecai has just been honored in royal fashion, but he goes back to work. He goes back to do his shift at the, at the palace gate. All right, verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Okay, now remember, the people had been commanded to bow to Haman. But Mordecai would not bow. He would not show him honor. So this is an incredible reversal. And his loving wife is right there to point everything out. In fact, she and his wise men get very theological at this point. They say, oh, yeah, if Mordecai is a Jew, this is not going to end well for you. All right, verse 14. All right, while... They were yet talking with him. The king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Okay, verse 14 starts off with while. All right, now keep in mind, for five years, Esther's been queen. Things have been just kind of dealing with ordinary day-in, day-out life at the palace. But now the author is helping us to understand the pace. Things are picking up. Things are happening. One thing right after another. Okay, it's um, Haman. He's had a full day of humiliation and dishonor, and he's he probably just wants to stay home and nurse his wounds. And yet, while he's in, while he, while he is speaking, that eunuch arrives to take him and take him to the um, deliver him to the second feast. All right, let's look at chapter seven, verse one. So the king and Haman went to the feast with Esther, Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. 
And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Okay, this is the third time that he has publicly said, I will give you whatever you desire. All right, and, and so, so he's going to have to do it. Now, some people will say that she has done this purposely. She's being very smart. All right, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king. All right, little side note. This is proper royal etiquette. This is the right way to go about addressing the king. All right, verse 3. Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Okay, she starts by asking that her life be spared. Okay, and this is a brilliant move on her part. Okay, she's being very subtle. She's being very skillful in keeping the conversation and not mentioning Haman yet. Okay, but I want you to think about it. If somebody's plotting to kill the king's wife, that's an attack on the king. Okay, even if the king has no affection for the wife, it's an attack. It would be seen as a, an attempt to overthrow the government. Okay, so she's very wisely talking about that. Um, it's very wise on her part. Okay, but also this means that Esther has just come out of the closet. Okay, she has just uh, put her name. She's been hiding her Jewishness for five years, but now she's publicly added her name to the list of people that are about to be slaughtered. Okay, and of course, Haman, he has no idea the king's wife is Jewish. All right, let's see what um, Esther says in verse 4. She says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Okay, she has chosen her words very carefully here. She is quoting Haman's edict word for word. This guy has got to be ashen at this point. She continues. She says, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Okay, apparently, people groups were made slaves all the time. And if it was just a matter of being sold, being sold she says, I wouldn't bother you. You're the king. Your time is very valuable. I, I wouldn't trouble with you with this. But now remember, she's seen the edict. And she knows the king is about to make a lot of money on this. And she knows that he's had financial problems over the past few years. So she knows that he was supposed, he was supposed to uh, fill his treasuries with this. And so it'll be um, a disadvantage. But she says to him, I would not have bothered you on this matter if I had not been sentenced to death, I and my people. Then King Ahasuerus, verse 5, then King Ahasuerus says to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? Now Esther at this point, she could have pointed to the king and said, It was you. You're the one that signed the decree. You're the man. You're the ding-dong that made this thing a law in the first place. What were you thinking? Okay, she wisely does not. Okay, she knows that Haman... She knows that Haman is the one behind this. Okay, so instead, she sets the stage. Verse 6, And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Oh, well, yes, I'm sure he was. 
Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. All right, the king leaves the room. We know he's angry. Now, some, most commentators say that they think he goes out to the garden to think because he's got a problem. He knows that he's the one that signed the law. But how does he punish Haman for a law that he signed without looking stupid? All right, now uh, Haman's about to solve that problem for him. Verse 8, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. All right, men were not allowed to touch the queen. It's said that sometimes they weren't even allowed within a certain distance from them. So this would have been totally inappropriate. Now, it's very doubtful, very doubtful, that the king actually thought that Haman was trying to rape his wife at that very moment. Okay, but it provides him with the perfect legal excuse to have him executed. And not only that, because he's attacked the queen. But if that wasn't enough, look what happens in verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai then the wrath of the king was abated. All right, one of the king's eunuchs, perhaps it was the one that had been assigned to Uber Haman back to the banquet. He says, hey, just so you know, Haman has some gallows that he made earlier to impale Mordecai. You know, the guy that saved your life, that one. And the king barely lets him finish his sentence. He says, use those. Okay, once again, we see a reversal. Haman wanted Mordecai the Jew to bow him. Now we see him bowing before a Jewish woman. All right, Haman had planned to hang Mordecai on the gallows, but he himself ends up being hanged there instead. Okay, what can we learn from this chapter? A ton of stuff. Right, there's a couple of things that we want to do with our time remaining. There are, are several Bible verses that our main characters really flesh out for us. And so um, we want to take the time to look at them. Now, we're going to start with the one that's probably the most obvious that we see in Haman's life. Number five on your paper, pride goes before destruction. You could also put the words fall, dishonor, brought low. Those are all words that the Proverbs will use to describe the outcome of pride. Now, I, um, Haman is probably one of the best examples in all of the Bible of, its, of pride and its outcome, where we see it in story form in the Bible. Now, I want to give you an interesting definition on pride, and it comes from C.S. Lewis. He wrote much on the topic. He said this, and I have it on your papers. Pride, it is the co complete anti-God state of mind. He said it is the concentration on self. All right, now, I want you to think back to our, um, we had second week where we talked um, together about glory. 
We talked about self-glory. We talked about vainglory. We talked about pride. And we talked a little about what that looked like and what it involved, but we didn't talk much about the results. We didn't talk much about the consequences. We save that for today because it's just so beautifully fleshed out for us in this chapter. According to the Bible, pride ends in destruction. Pride left unchecked is going to take you right off the cliff. Now, in this case with Haman, his pride was fanned and fled. We watch him become so prideful and so absorbed with himself that he will eventually die on the very gallows that he built to display his pride. Okay, did that make sense? All right, ladies, let me ask you, are you building your own gallows? Are you building your own gallows? Are you putting pride to death? Or are you feeding it? Are you fanning it? because that will always lead to destruction. In week two, we talked about pride, and we said it described it as self-glory. Okay, pride says, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm wearing. Pride says, we're doing this my way. I'm in charge. I know best. Pride says, I will not submit to my husband. I will not respect him. I will not forgive her. Pride says many things, and it leads to destruction. Are you building your own gallows? Next, let's talk about Esther. Oh, because in this chapter, she just gets everything right, and it makes you proud of your gender. <laughs> she is gracious, and she's smart, she's subtle but she's strong. She's respectful, but she's direct. She's passionate, but she's in control. She's got it all going on. Okay, notice though, she does not go to the king and appeal to his sense of right and wrong. I'm not sure he had one. And she knows what he's like. She knows what he's like, so she doesn't take that approach. She knows that the king's primary concern is the king. And so she appeals to that, and she very wisely keeps everything about him. And that brings me to our next verse. Number six, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Okay. This verse in its context this is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he's telling them, I am going to send you out to be sheaves, no, to be sheep among wolves. And wolves eat sheep. But you're not to act like wolves. You're to be sheep. You're to be wise sheep. You're to be prudent sheep, like serpents. You're to be sheep that use their heads and are aware of their surroundings and are aware of the way things work. You're, you're to be aware of the natural order of things and use those, and you're to be innocent. Innocent as doves. Here's our next point, number seven. The Lord in his providence uses the faithful efforts of his people and calls them to be active and use all the means 
at their disposal. Okay, we've got to remember, this is a book without any miracles. Now, some people think that God gives Esther this plan during the three days that she's fasting, and, and that could very possibly be. But this book, in this book, there's no record of God giving any direct instruction. He doesn't do anything directly in this book. Instead, God is behind the scenes. He's in the shadows. Okay, he's, he's using the natural order of things to fulfill his purposes. And so what are we to do? Well, we're to be women that use our heads. We're to be women that have godly common sense. We're to be aware of our surroundings and the way it works and use them. We're to use all the means at our disposal. When I was a young mom, I used to be involved in a group like this. And I lived in a town with a very big library. Now, in, in my day, we didn't have Kindle. We didn't have the internet, so everybody used their library. We all went. And um, in the front of our library, we had this huge display case that was right there as you first walked in. And we began to notice that um, different organizations would take turns um, dis displaying stuff in it and promoting their causes. So we thought, well, we're a group, and we have a cause, so let's get a gospel message in that display case. And so um, we uh, did some digging, and we found that you had to sign up and that you, the display would be in there for two weeks, and you could sign up for two times a year. And so we had made this plan. We put something together. We thought we're going to be subtle, but a gospel, and that we would display some books about motherhood and parenting, and then we would take those books and donate them into our public library and get them circulating. So uh, my girlfriend, she was in charge of going to the library to sign up. And our first choice was to get those first two weeks before Mother's Day because, you know, we were a mother's group. And so um, thankfully, she was able to get those two weeks. And then I asked her, okay, what were the other two weeks that you got for us? And she said, um, I took the two weeks before Halloween. And I looked at her a little confused because I really wasn't making the connection between motherhood and Halloween. And then she began to grin. And she said, oh, let's just say this Halloween, that display case is not going to be filled with witches and demons and skeletons. Oh, I thought she was genius. She'd been wise as a serpent. She had looked at that calendar and she used her head she was aware of her surroundings, and she knew that most likely that display case for those two weeks were going to be filled, was going to be filled with darkness. Somebody was going to put on display darkness in there in, in some form. And then with the stroke of a pen, she said, no, not this year. This year, there will be innocence. So we came up with this theme. We called it fall into a good book. And the crafty girls in our group, they've made this big, huge tree that just took up the whole, that took up the whole display case. And then we had um, fall leaves falling down and all over the place. And we had strategically placed little um, dolls and stuffed animals, and they were reading books, carefully chosen books, that we were then going to take from that showcase and d donate them to our library to be circulated. 
When it was done, the librarians later would say to us, that was the nicest display case we've ever seen. You know what? We're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We're to be women that use our heads, that we're prudent, that we're aware of our surroundings. We're to be classy women that are strong and gracious and respectful and controlled and subtle. We're to know that, yes, God works in the miracles, but he also works in the ordinary, everyday stuff. And we're to be aware of that, and we're to use it. We're to use the means that God puts at our disposal to let people know, to give a report of the great work that God has done and the mercy he has shown you. Here's our next point, number eight. The book of Esther shows the reality of God working in secondary causes and their dependence upon God and his control of them. Now let's unpack that one a little. We are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And we're to use the means that God puts at our disposal. But sheep are dependent on the shepherd. Okay, we would be very foolish to miss the big lesson in this chapter. And that is that nothing Esther did would have been effective if the king had slept through the night. Okay? Everything hinges on the fact that the king couldn't sleep. If the king had slept through the night, if he had passed out and slept through the night, Mordecai would have been dead by breakfast. And, and the banquet with him would have been dare, very different. He likely would have been very emboldened, and Esther would have given a very different speech. Everything is hinging on the sleepless night. The people, in, the people of God in this story, in this chapter, they, they are doing what they're, they're doing their part. They've been faithful to do their part. They have responded righteously, but this chapter is showing that everything is dependent on the mercy of God. Everything is hinging on the mercy of God. And that brings us to Mordecai and our last verse. Here's our next point. Number nine, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want you to imagine that you are a Jew in Susa and you've heard the news, you and your family, about the decree. And so you put on sackcloth and ashes and you begin mourning, and you begin crying out to God. And then sometime after that, you find out your queen is Jewish. Now, you'd heard rumors, but now you know it's true. And she is calling everyone to fast from food and water for three days and three nights. So you and your family, you go without food and water for three days while you cry out to God. On the fourth day, you get up. You take a bite to eat, you drink a glass of water, you change your clothes, and you decide to go out to the city square to do some shopping. And what do you see? Why, lo and behold, it's Mordecai the Jew. And he is sitting on the king's horse, and he is wearing the king's robe. And the number two guy, the prime minister, is heralding him through the streets. 
saying, thus it shall be done to the man the king delights to honor. And of course, the people are gathering and they're paying attention, especially the Jews, because they recognize this guy. This is the guy that has been at the city square fasting and, and, and going without and wearing his ashes and sackcloth. And now he's on the king's horse. He's on the king's horse instead of on those gallows. Oh, people knew who those gallows were for. And he's not on them. Those gallows are empty. Now, let me ask you. I want you to think about it. If you're a Jew and you've spent the last three days humbling yourself and crying out to God, if you've spent the last three days going without food and water, and on day four, you see Mordecai sitting on the, hor on the king's horse, what do you suppose you're thinking? You're thinking, Lord, you are so merciful. Lord, you are so merciful. You are so merciful. That horse ride was sending a message to the people of God. It was saying, you are at work behind the scenes. You are at work while we sleep. God is at work doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may only be aware of three. That horse ride was saying, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace and mercy. God's the hero of this story. Brings us to our last point, number 10. <clears throat> our lives and the fruitfulness of all we do hinge on the mercy of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for mercy. We praise you that you are a merciful God. You are a gracious God. And Father, we pray that you will help us to be women that are wise as serpents, that are innocent as doves, women that put your glory on display every chance we get. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.